Welcome to the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode 75, and my name is Vic Bonacci. We are a part of the Agile Podcast Network. You can find more at agilepodcastnetwork.com. For today's Lean Coffee, we are excited to have Johanna Rothman join us. Johanna's got three new books out, a triad of books under the title of Modern Management Made Easy, Practical Ways to Manage Yourself, to Lead and Serve Others, and to Lead an Innovative Organization. Those are three different book titles right there, all containing the same theme of making management easy. So Johanna's worked with teams and leaders and managers and knows quite a deal about product management. We're very excited to have her join us. You can find out more about Johanna on her website, jrothman.com. So Johanna's going to be joining Ben and Chris and myself in just a moment. Before we get started, you can help support this podcast by either taking one of my own classes. I offer online scrum classes. You can go to onlinescrumclass.com to find out more. Or you can go to this podcast's Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash agilecoffee, and for the cost of just a cup of coffee every month, you would be helping not only the audio podcast and any videos we do, but any other products and ideas that we get out there into the wide open internet. Uh, Looking forward to episode 76, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing, is sharing with you my yearly ritual. It's become a tradition for me at the end of every year, going into the new year, to, um, to kind of retrospect. How has the last year gone? Has it gone according to plan? What new things came up and so on? as well as looking ahead to the next year and maybe beyond. Some of the tools I use are the Circle of Life or um, Ikigai. I have a list of uh, values that I go back to. There's two books, actually, that I'm going to be using this year that I have been using, and I'll go into depth in the next episode. Um, Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, as well as Who Do We Choose to Be? by the great Margaret Wheatley. These two books and some of the tools that I've uh, been using over the past few years, I will go into more detail on on how I employ them and and kind of how this process for me has changed and and what it's done for me as well. So that's looking ahead to uh, the next episode, episode 76. But here, right now, we're about to jump into a very exciting and lively lean coffee with Johanna, as well as Ben and, and Chris. The four of us sat down and we had a great discussion. So I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy this fresh brew of Agile Coffee. Welcome to Agile Coffee, episode 75. Today is our first episode of the new year, so I'm very happy to welcome back to the program Ben Rodelitz and Chris Herney. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thanks, Vic. Ben can be found on Twitter at Ben Rodelitz, and Chris is at Chris underscore Herney. Today also we have Johanna Rothman with us and uh, very excited because Johanna's got a few books out and uh, we've been listening to her on other podcasts and now we've got her on the Agile Coffee podcast. Welcome, Johanna. Thank you, Vic. I'm very happy to be here. So Johanna's Twitter is Johanna Rothman. She can also be found on her website, jrothman.com. 
It's the time of the season for uh, new beginnings, and that must mean new books. Uh, not to disappoint, you've provided us with a triad of books, three of them. Could you share kind of the process of, of how these books have come to be and, and maybe share the titles and, and who they're intended for as well? So the first book, Practical Ways to, to Manage Yourself, and well, I should say, Practical Ways to Manage Yourself, Practical Ways to Lead and Serve, uh, in parentheses, Manage Others, and Practical Ways to Lead an Innovative Organization. So I wrote these management myths back when I was um, writing a column a month for TechWell. Okay. And, and I said, oh, I can just package them as one book and everyone would love to read these myths notice the just in in that sentence anytime you heard just it's probably not just and so i i started to realize i needed a little introduction and then i needed some options for what you could do and now I could not package them all into one book. I really needed to separate them because I wanted managers to read them. So a manager is not going to read a 500-page tome. Not going to happen. And I had all these references. Yeah, not, I, w I wanted to make the books accessible, not difficult. So that's why I, I turned them into three books. Ben, you've got our first question of the day. Uh, you had said, should we stop calling it agile transformation with the word transformation in quotes? You want to kick that off for us? Sure. Um, this, this has to do more with the experience that I think most of us find that when we come into an engagement, we're not starting at the very beginning. And actually the background uh, back from, you know, I'm a recovering Gantt head and back in my old uh, waterfall traditional management days, I was studying different uh, management tools and the like. And I read a very prescient comment that said, you know, part of the problem with these tools is they assume you're starting at the beginning. And at any time you're in, uh, at any time within a company, if you took a core sample of what they're working on, well over 80% of those projects have to be considered ongoing far enough that you're not starting over. Um, and, and that, I kind of forgot about that until I started parachuting in to help teams with their agile transformation. And there were so many things that were already done. I wasn't going to transform them. Right. So uh, the question is kind of nomenclature related, but it's, it's also along the line of what are the things we should be doing when we're coming into a place that's trying it. Right. None of us have ever heard we tried agile and it didn't work. Right. We've never heard that. So what are the differences between, um, when you're starting fresh and can do the things like getting a vision canvas and all of these other things versus the situation we find ourselves in most of the time, which is an ongoing process. And we don't get to really transform them, but we get to fill in the blank. So I like to think about an agile transformation in several ways. And I'm sure I'm not, I, I, I suspect all of you will agree with me, but I'm sure that this is not what the general um, transformation people agree. I, in my experience, agility is a cultural issue. It's how, what we do is it safe for us to experiment is well, how do we treat people who experiment and learn from their experiments? How do we reward people for individual work 
or for team-based work? And do we reward managers at all levels as teams, not as individuals? And so I think it is partially a transformation, but of the culture and a lot about the reward system, not about the practices a team does. Any, any team. I happen to think that a lot of teams would really benefit from a flow-based approach to their work. I'm, I'm happy to do that inside iterations. But I find that flow-based metrics are often serve, well, I should say flow-based metrics serve teams better than other kinds of data. That's something I'd heard you speak about often is just flow efficiency, the importance of flow efficiency and how we could make teams um, kind of understand that and and be more optimized, more efficient in their flow of getting things through. Could you kind of talk about, and again, we probably have some that we use, but maybe share with the audience some some of the key kind of flow-based metrics that you uh, you go to or you advise people with? I really like cycle time. And, and lead time. And especially um, since, since I wrote a, uh, books about management, I'm going to talk about cycle time and lead time for management. Because I, I often find that the decision times, right, if a manager is supposed to make a decision on Monday and does not make that decision until three weeks from Monday, then the teams are either waiting or, or have postponed their work the work that they were going to do on Monday for another three weeks. That lead time and cycle time, um, I, I believe it was Troy McGinnis who first gave me this insight of the delays outweigh all the work time. And if we start to look at management cycle time at any level and look at the delays, oh, we could do we could do so much more work and get it done if we didn't have those delays. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I that really resonates with me, especially due to the fact that oftentimes when um, the, the management cycle times are exacerbated by indecisiveness or unwillingness to make a decision. However, the expectations of the delivery team don't change, right? That that arbitrary hard date that they planted out in the future in the calendar that's not moving, so that's where I see a lot of a lot of problems. Well, Johanna, that sounds like a, a good entree into the pushing decisions down to where the work is. In other words, instead of us waiting for your decisions, maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the problem is that you're holding those decisions. So that's an interesting entree into that discussion. There's a really good video that has a lot of synergy with what you said, Ben, from David Marquette and turn the ship around guy. It's called intent based leadership. It's a, yeah. it's a nine minute video about uh, experience as a submarine commander. Yeah. And he found out that walking up and down the submarine, barking explicit instructions to people was ineffective because it was either too late or he didn't know as much about the people who were actually doing the work. And so he made a shift where he was going to articulate his intent and let the people who are experts in, in their domain make the actual tactical decisions. Yeah, they're all waiting to hear something from the captain, and the captain's an idiot. 
<laughs> I think he says that. So, no, that's why that is a quote from that. Yeah. yeah, I love it. So, so I think that a submarine captain is a little bit different than a software manager, and <laughs> a lot of times, well, so this is this comes back to the reward system again. If we think that managers have all quote all the knowledge that they need to make decisions, and no one ever ever does. Mm -hmm. And, and the managers are rewarded for these decisions, not for pushing the decisions down or even offering enough information that teams could make these decisions. That's, that's where I see, I'm happy to use intent-based leadership when it's, when it's reasonable. I often say that it's not quite reasonable because not any no one person has enough information. The, the one director has some information, another director has another, a manager over here has a little bit, a VP has a little bit more. These are the, uh, these are the people who need to work as a team. Yeah. And that's part of the problem that uh, I, I would love to push all this decision making down. That's one of the reasons I said delegate problems and outcomes. So, Ben, do we all get to drink um, some coffee? Because I already <laughs> use the outcome word. It, usually, these are afternoon meetings, and we don't we don't restrict <laughs> the coffee. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> so, in, in, another question, and this kind of the 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 when I hear about affecting culture, um, when. Chris and I took the large-scale Scrum class. One of the first quotes, you know, that stand by itself is that you can't change culture unless you change organization. And that it's, it's that oftentimes the change in culture will follow a change in organization and not just starting with changing the culture. How does that resonate with you? I think it is possible to change the culture by changing the responsibilities mm -hmm. of people. I don't think that um, moving places around in the org chart has any influence at all on the culture. I think rewards totally change the culture. So I am, um, yeah. I, I think I think Ben, what Larman meant by that was, you know, you can't change culture without changing the underlying supporting structures, which compensation and rewards would, I think would be a part of that. Um, you know, um, how, how the level of empowerment you give people to, to run experiments, measure them and, and, you know, adapt to the, to the feedback from those experiments, things like that. I, okay. I think that, I think that at least in my perception, I think that aligns with what Larman says, right. Is, uh, um, you know, do we have a supporting structure that, encourages people to experiment versus uh, are we just pushing down instruction on people and, and letting them complain about how things don't work, but we don't ever cha actually change anything. Just now, it's just now striking me with, with Johanna's discussion that at the, at the scrum gathering about three years ago, I did a paper, I did a talk on making HR Part mm. of your agile transformation, only I left the air quotes out of it. But it was exactly, I mean, the, the, the guts of yeah. it were exactly that. If we're trying to embrace agility, then you need to reward agility and not reward the standard rank yeah. stack individual things. There's the, And there is a lot of 
content out there uh, about even the idea of um, individual performance reviews, right? How those are oh. sort of antithetical yeah. to the idea of an agile organization. Yeah, that was that was probably the, the one of the first three sentences I said was, you know, and 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 it came from a, a study in like 2015 that it's billions and billions of dollars spent on the whole review cycle, yeah. and there's about a dollar eighty of demonstrable benefit of it. But but in the but I was doing it in the, in the agile context. I would be surprised if there's any positive benefit from an yeah. individual performance review. Feedback. Oh, I'm all about feedback. Um, we actually have 25 years of data, right? Written books with data to say individual performance reviews harm everything. They harm the individual. They harm the ability of that person to collaborate with anybody else. They harm um, performance management. They harm motivation. They they are deadly to an agile culture. And that's one of the myths that you uh, spelled out in in the second book here. Uh, I've got open in front of me the um, the practical ways to lead and serve or manage others. Chapter eight. The myth is evaluation via performance reviews are useful. And uh, yeah, as as you said, attention works. Give people that feedback. Pay attention. Listen to them. Share with them. I wanted to kind of use that to segue to the next topic. It says uh, managers, there's three levels of managers, and this is kind of um, generally speaking, three levels, right? You've got your kind of first level, the people that work with the teams, the mid-level managers, and then the most senior people in an organization. Um, and and I was, as I was thinking of that, I was wondering if there's any parallels or tri- um, ties into the, the triad here of your books, if there was a any kind of relationship. But when we talk about um, performance, um, what's the role of managers then in kind of working with HR and, and introducing that to them? So let me go back to the first question, which is, yeah, as manage yourself for first level managers? And the answer is, I thought it was until I started to work with senior managers who had never learned to manage themselves. Okay, so it's it's applicable to every, quote, level. However, I thought that if we started with first-level managers and giving examples of how managers can stop putting their tendrils into, into the work, that they will then facilitate and lead the work as opposed to do the work. So that's that's one of the reasons that's kind of in that book and sort of in the second book. And then the second book is all about creating teams. And really, uh, Drucker called it our, um, a harmonic whole. Um, and I find that that business of harmony and whole as opposed um, in relationship to a team, as opposed to individuals, that that really made it clear uh, to me that individual performance reviews really did not work. I mean, they don't work. They never have worked. Yeah, fine. Uh, so, and leading an innovative organization, I think that it's possible for first and second level managers to use their influence to ask questions or offer alternatives to senior leadership. I do think that a lot of senior leadership needs to take the actions in book three. Um, I think it's very, very hard for you. Well, maybe a mid-level manager can do some of it. 
but I think it's hard for a first level manager to really act in ways that are that really support innovation. So, um, I mean, certainly at the local level, but yeah, I think it, I think that's difficult. I have found, and I, I tell the story of a great piece of feedback I got from one of my managers very, very early on in my career. And it, it totally changed the, the, the way I finish projects. I now have checklists, my checklists have checklists because I, I get to 95% done or even a little bit more. And then, you know, it's not enough. Why do I actually have to push it over the goal line? So I, I use checklists for me. Other people might use anything else. That's, that's totally fine. But if we, if we think about the ideas of reinforcing feedback and reinforcing what people do well, which is, Johanna, I really like the way you finished. And notice I did not say finally finished that project. I just say, I said finished. Um, that will reinforce my behavior to do it again. Not because it's um, praise, but because it's, um, it's feedback about stuff I did well, as opposed to that's the 14th project you didn't finish this year. Right. That's not that might be true. And if I have not heard about that since, then I, I would need to know that. And if I have been supporting other people in their work, is it is that the is that more information that uh, we want as reinforcing feedback rather than my my quote own work? So I think I'm going to be using that with my 14-year-old daughter who's in high school. <laughs> Sophia, I really like the way you finished that homework <laughs> the other day. Yeah. Without yeah. saying finally. <laughs> you know where where that where that resonates with me quite a bit is, you know, often in my coaching or consulting, I give a lot of positive feedback like Johanna described. Uh feedback on feedback. So when I hear somebody in in a group gathering show some courage, show some bravery and sort of step put make himself or herself vulnerable and put something out there that in some of these sort of bureaucratic and stodgy organizations that I deal with might, you know, people might you know wonder where that came from. Uh, you know, I, I, I give people feedback on their bravery and their courage for saying things like that in hopes that it encourages that person or others to continue to do that. Because I think when we have that, uh, again, this goes back to, you know, psychological safety, you know, when, when people are willing and feel empowered to speak out about things that are going well, things that are going poorly, things that they want to change, that's when we see the needle really move in this idea, again, going back to Ben's topic, this idea of transformation and cultural transformation, right? People are now willing to to be vocal and, and address their concerns in a public forum and, and actually want to do something about it rather than just putting their heads down and saying, well, it is what it is. This is the company I work for and I'm just going to trudge along. It's it, it, this kind of really perked a revelation that I've had in the last time, about six months into my current posting, which is on a big military project. And uh, I think it was actually you, Chris, who said that the idea of military groups being agile seemed like an anathema. And, and 
my instinct was that that wasn't right. And it's actually almost the opposite because of some of the things we've already talked about. We spend a lot of time on our, on our postings about um, building teams and, and that's what they've done. That's all they've done is build teams, you know, so they're really good at that. Um, the leadership from the top that Johanna mentioned is really important. We've got uh, a Lieutenant Colonel. I mean, you know, you don't have to think about what the levels are. They're named, right? You've got colonels and majors and lieutenants. So, so there's, you don't have to look at an org chart to know where people are. And it's even funnier because they're doing scrum and safe. And, and they did a very simple selection process. If you're, a, if you're a lieutenant, then you can be a scrum master. If you're a captain, then you can be a product owner. And, and it's, it's really worked. I mean, you know, but, but the idea, when I hear in a meeting, People going to the, the she's called the material leader, Lieutenant Colonel, who's running this enormous project, and they feel comfortable pushing back. Or when she has an issue with some with somebody with something that happened, and she almost always start with, "To be clear, you didn't do anything wrong, but here's what I saw." That completely changed my my top down, do what I say, don't question what I'm doing attitude. Now she's. A really interesting element in any agile group is these people transition off every two years. Every two years, they're moving and not all at once. So we're constantly doing the retaining stuff. She's leaving, and it'll be very interesting to hear if that follows in. You know, is this or is this the style all the time, or is this her style that's going to change? But it's been a, it's been a revelation in that arena. Let's move on then to our next topic. We have, uh, Chris, this one is yours. It says, many leaders believe their involvement in agile transformation, again in quotes, is writing a check. Where should leadership start? Yeah, I, I think we actually touched on a lot of this in previous topics, but I will admit that this was a this question was a plant uh, ju- just to get Johanna going because I recently heard Johanna talking on a podcast about um, – this idea, I, I think the quote you used, Johanna, was from 70s and 80s uh, management leaders who said the goal of an organization is to return value to shareholders. And you <laughs> talked about the goal of an organization being to deliver valuable products to customers because you don't have an organization without customers. And uh, and I, what you rolled into on that is the, the goal of, of leaders in an organization is to create environments where everyone can do their best work. And that, that, that's something that I've heard others say, uh, Woody Zool and Mark Case, who we all know, uh, were doing workshops on creating safe spaces for agile software development and things like that. So I just wanted to sort of see if we could get Johanna rolling on that topic about creating safe environments. Because, oh, yeah, because prime. Well, let, let me tie it back to my question, because that, that's where I believe leadership should start, creating an environment conducive to this idea of an agile transformation or adoption or whatever we want to call it. And that's why I really think that managers and leaders have to start with themselves, right? If, if a leader is not safe to disagree with anybody, uh, um, parallel, up, down, sideways, um, if you cannot disagree with people, I don't see how you can create a an agile anything. You don't. It's not a transformation without safety. And so, um, I let me tie this back to the books for just a second. When I 
my first reviewers for book one said, I can't believe you said all these things to your managers. And I, I'm totally upfront that these are com mostly conversations I've had with other people where, yes, I was the blunt and direct person. And I, I have since tried to frame my words so, so that I don't piss people off. Right? I, I want them to hear me before they discount what, the, um, what I'm saying. However, I often find that if you, I'm not going to placate people. I'm not going to say, oh, yes, you're fine. I'm going to be congruent with them and have a reasonable conversation. And the very first time a manager, a senior leader said to me, a C-level person, um, I, th I think he was actually a CFO, said, the job of this organization is to return value to the shareholders. And I said in my best CFO voice, how do you do that if you don't have products and services people want to buy? And he said, what? <laughs> Every time you hear that, what? That, oh, that, that little um, sit back and say, wait a minute, you just interfered with my little bubble of illusion. That's when you have an entry point to to start to change people's perspectives. So I said, I'm not about taking care of people in the organization. This is not a charity. However, if we don't allow people space, and this, this organization was literally space bound. This is back, way back before COVID. They had um, developers at long, long tables and you had one monitor and your laptop underneath it. You had no room to put paper on either side of you. You barely had room for a coffee cup or water and you were next to a person, you could barely move your chair out of the way and head out to the uh, buyer break or a walking break or anything. This, the space was incompatible with work. And of course, er everyone was in this open bullpen, including the senior leaders. Well, where were they all day? In, the, in the, all the conference rooms. So all the people who needed to do the work were, were stuck in these long, long tables. Everyone had on headsets. Nobody talked to each other. I had been brought in to understand why that the most recent nine-month project had taken 18 months and had no sign of finishing, right? No sign. And when I said, um, and and when the, I um, when I interviewed the CFO and he talked about value to the shareholders, I said, I'm sure that the shareholders, the stakeholders, really want to know when this project will be done. And based on my information right now, I can tell you, you have no hope of finishing this in the next three years. And he said, that's impossible. <laughs> so I showed him data. And then I said, here's what you could do. One small thing you could do that would change everything about the organization. And that's, that was making it safe for people to actually work together and um, to, to make it safe for people to ask questions. There were a whole bunch of things about deliverables, right? That's, that's a different piece of this. But the whole idea of, of collaboration as a means to an end was something he had not thought about. He was so focused on the end result, the outcome Ben, right? I'm, I'm teasing you. 
um, the outcome that he wanted. He was, he did not think about oblique ways to get there. And that's when business schools and, and management rewards reinforce direct thinking, they are not allowing for possibilities. And we certainly cannot create great environments in which people can do their best work. Yeah, I, I went to business school and I remember, remember that being one of the debates. And, and the idea with business school is there's always one single right answer. And, and that's so anathema of the, of the work that we do. Yeah. I, I, I had a little agile tear leak out of my eye once when I saw the transformation in a, in a CTO um, who had a great executive agile coach. Um, he had started as a typical CTO with exactly that idea. You know, we have schedules, we need to get things done. And, and if you think about it, we were doing safe. If you think about the run up with uh, getting your features sized and getting your story sized and figuring out your capacity and all this stuff. And he did the kickoff. And I, you know, kind of half dozed thinking we were going to get the same old malarkey. And the first words out of his mouth were, I don't care about story points. I care about delivering value to my customers. And I guarantee you that those customers don't care about story points. They care about getting the quality product that is, uh, uh, you know, I'm putting words in his mouth, but deterministic, reliable, and that kind of stuff. And I thought, what a great way to set the tone because they're going to put their heads down and worry about, is this a three or a five point story? And does this fit into our capacity with 80% focus factors and all this? And, and his first words were, that's not what we're here for. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Your, your, your story about the, the big, long work, open space workbenches and people with minimal space to work heads down keep their eyes on their work. It reminded me a lot of this idea of um, productivity versus efficacy, right? Are, are, are we being effective with what we're doing or are we just staying busy? Um, <clears throat> and when you said that you evaluated a project that was, I, I forget, it was supposed to take nine months, it was 18 months, and then you said it wasn't going to finish for three years. It's 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 something I've been thinking about for a while. In, in an organization that equates with doing effective work um, that 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 culture that trickles down to the people who are producing work widgets code whatever the case may be and I started to think maybe it's a subconscious thing maybe it's not maybe it's an explicit thing but are people like that even motivated to finish projects because finishing projects marks the end of our pace and our productivity. And if we're being rewarded for pace and productivity, well, let's just drag this out, out forever until I retire. I can just be maximally productive all day long and get an attaboy at the end of the day. And I never really have to finish anything. Um, so I have found that when organizations want time cards and they want, quote, accurate, accurate data about where you spend time on the project, yeah, that happens. This this particular organization was not really measuring time in that way, but they were not looking at um, what the customers needed, and they were not. They were so focused on we must constrain our our rental in downtown Boston to something we can afford, and we must constrain. Um, 
where people sit so that we have, quote, an open open space so everybody can see everybody else. They were so focused on on stuff that did not make sense for a really working environment. Right. They this is cargo cult for the for the organizational structure, the physical structure, as opposed to um, what kind of a structure you and culture you really want. It's the it's easy easy metrics versus hard metrics where it's easy to tell how expensive space is, but it's hard to measure the benefit of spending more. We we used to run into this with training or sending. I wanted to send my engineers to trade shows to see people interacting with our products, and it was very easy to see how expensive it was to send them there with all the costs. But it was very hard to say. But I guarantee you they're going to do eight point three nine five percent better work from having to understand what you know, what the customer did. We changed an entire product line because of, uh, it, it was me and we, I, we were on the wrong track going to a trade show and surreptitiously having a salesman explain our competitors' products and my product to me and, and finding what the struggles, the struggles were. I literally, we changed the focus that weekend after that. How do you, how do you quantify yeah. that? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's necessary. Yeah. yeah. Experiments. Experiments. Which leads us to our next topic. <laughs> Johanna, this is yours. Uh, how safe are managers to experiment? So one of the things I've seen is that so many of my clients want predictability. And they and I understand predictability. I, I like I like a little predictability in my life. In fact, I freely admit I have the same thing for breakfast and for lunch every single day. I am that predictable, right? Other people are listening to this saying, Oh my God, she's <laughs> such an idiot. I happen to like that amount of predictability because it makes getting my meals easy and fast. Right. I can I can go back to my writing. However, having predictability in advance where you know the least about the work seems to me to be the basis of just a wrong kind of mindset. Right. To think that we can predict a year's worth of project portfolio. I mean, I, I tried to to work on that in the project portfolio book. And um, what, how, how we could possibly estimate or predict or forecast all the, excuse me, all the features in a in a product in this release? I don't see how we can do that. Why would we want to do this at the very time that we know the least? So, how can we reduce risk? If I can get people to start thinking about experiments, reduce risk, so we can predict better then then I will have done my job. But I find that so many people this is this is a direct approach again, right? If we if we forecast, estimate something, um, predict what we're going to do, it will be right, right? <laughs> and it's not. But if we experiment more, we might be able to reduce the risk. And and to Ben's point, if we send people as an experiment, I mean, think about this. What's a week worth of of a six-person team on working on a product, writing code and writing tests? And then um, contrast that to three days worth at a trade show. Okay, we're not actually going anywhere, but looking at other people's 
products. If you spent three days looking at, at the various customer bases, customer problems, and contrast that with actually, quote, doing, end of quote, work, you might learn so much in those three days. Mm-hmm. I used to uh, have a, an SAT-type question that I would ask on this topic. And it was which of the which one of the following four statements does not belong with the other three, and and they all came from the same CEO who I really liked. And these were things he'd said at different points, and I aggregated them. We want you to not be afraid to fail. We want you to get out of your comfort zone. We want you to learn new things. I want velocity to go up ten percent. <laughs> right? Oh, and, yeah. And, and of course, you know, people laugh because they get it. And, and then you point out, which is the only one of these four that's measurable, right? And and also notice that the top three are exactly antithetical to the fourth. If you do any of the top three things, your velocity is going to go down. So that's kind of in that vein of, do you have the safety to experiment and try things? You can't just say it. You need to, you need to back it up. We also pointed out that 10% forever improve, improvement in velocity is kind of mathematically impossible, but that might have been the only thing he heard from us. Well, and, and the fact that he actually wanted to see velocity yeah. at the seed level, yep. yeah, that's just, that's craziness. Um, this is, velocity is so misunderstood by almost everybody, including in the teams. If I could do one thing, I would have everybody measure their cycle time and stop with the story points. Yep. Nobody cares about the number of story points any any piece of work is. They care about when will we see this outcome I said the outcome worrying again, Ben, right? <laughs> when will we see it? When will the customer see it? And the this business of velocity, it was back when teams had only one product and they only worked on one release and they didn't have to do support and they didn't have to do other interrupting work. We might have been able to use velocity. I did teach about velocity in the in the early to mid 2000s and by 2009 I had stopped because my teams the teams I coached the teams I taught nobody could use velocity how much room do we need to leave in the iteration for interrupting work well how much interrupting work do you have well sometimes it's five things sometimes it's 20 uh, sometimes all we do is fix things I said stop using velocity I mean I, I don't I don't know how to make this any clearer. If it's not working for you, why would you use it? Yeah. This is why I'm, I, I, I have a real takedown of velocity and create your successful agile project. I have a blog post. Um, I, I really I think that velocity was useful at one point in time. Mm -hmm. It is no longer useful. And if we could get away from story points and velocity and just move to cycle time, my work is still not done, but yeah. (laughs) I've got an interesting kind of a horror story about velocity. So I was working with an organization who had a lot of teams practicing scrum and most of the teams had gotten fairly mature with Scrum. They they estimated user stories. Now, the user stories weren't actually user stories, but I digress. They estimated their work in story points, small batches of work. They planned that amount of work for an iteration, and they usually came close to delivering it. 
and and they touted their their velocity, their their stretch goals. Okay, we used to do X number of story points. Now we do X plus two story points. And you know, okay, fair enough. But the problem is organizationally, they had a massive stage gate that nothing could touch the customer's hands without UAT from someone in the business. So these teams would finish their sprints successfully, pat themselves on the back for for you know maintaining or exceeding velocity, and then this work, this code would go sit somewhere for four months until someone in the business could actually tinker with it in the UAT environment. And the feedback from the business was, well, we're really busy, so we don't always have time to get to the UAT for this stuff. So to your point, Johanna, about about cycle time, nobody measured the cycle time. The cycle time was massive and frankly, unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But here you have these teams saying, we do a great job with our velocity. (laughs) <laughs> and even without con- confusing it with cycle time, I, I I got to spend a month up at Google and was expected to be overwhelmed by how well they did things. And Chris, they were in the exact same situation you were in. And I jumped in and I kept hearing uh, milestones of the end of November and the end of January. And I said, well, I don't understand. What is it? Said, well, the software has to be done at the end of January because we have to re- uh, uh, November because we have to release it at the end of January. <laughs> Well, I said, well, what is that about? Well, we have UAT and all this. And, and I didn't talk to him about cycle time. I just said, how would you like to get a, get another month's worth of work into that release? Yeah. yeah. Right. How would you, you know, not let's let's do value stream mapping and find your weights and all that stuff. Just very simply, if 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 you could, would you like another month's worth of, of things into that into that release? And starting from that point, let's figure out how to get there. It was I, it, made, it made me actually feel good that all the other places were the same as, as Google. Well, the this, this part of Google, I should say. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing to me about that is, you know, the underlying foundation of working on small batch sizes in short iterations of time is that that thing that we're working on is so monumentally important to our customer, we have to hurry up and get it in their hands. And so if, if you if you hurry up and rush, 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 and you finish some tangible value in two weeks and it's ready and now has to sit for four months for UAT. Was it ever really that important? It seems to me the answer is no, right? So that's, that's one of the reasons why every team has to understand its purpose, right? That's why the manager has to understand his or her purpose. The team has to understand the purpose. The organization has to understand the purpose of this work. And then without the purpose, it's just, yeah. The purpose is returning value to the shareholders, Johanna. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I'm kind of, I, 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 I'm backing off my vehemence uh, uh, about metrics in, in a couple of ways. The first thing is is the leaders of the company have a, have a not just a right, but they have a duty to understand how we're doing and are we getting better. And And this is – I'll say it myself, the outcome. The outcome isn't his velocity going up, but are we getting better at delivering things? And those are two different questions, and maybe we find the right ways to answer the questions that they have. So just saying, you know, the metrics in and of itself may not be a a fruitful discussion to a C-level who cared about velocity because he thought that that was the measure. So the, the, the key there was the education, that that's not the right measure. Well, and that's why I offer several other measures in the books, yep. right? Because yep. mm-hmm. I, I think that we do. We need to measure lots of things in the organization. 
And um, I talk about pirate metrics. I talk about the metrics from um, Nicole and Jez's. And who was the other person on Accelerate? Oh, the Accelerate book. Um, yeah. And and really looking at, at the flow in in all of these various teams. If we can if we could reduce delays, we would find that our all of our virtuous metrics go up. Yeah. And all of our difficult, challenging problems would reduce. Not go think, away, but reduce. I think that that answers the question I was about to ask, uh, going back to the original topic, how safe are managers to experiment? And I think if managers just knew that, if they had that, that, that confidence, that first step was going to show some positive feedback, the metrics going up, as you said, then I think it becomes safer for them. But let me ask the question anyway, um, for you, in terms of if I was a, a manager of a team, like a first level manager there, and I felt the team wanted to do some experimentation, but I didn't know how safe I was, what's, what's one bit of advice you would tell managers there in terms of finding that safety? So I would ask the team this question, Good. how short can you make the experiment? Great. How quickly can you get information so that I can feel comfortable? And I, w- I would actually say, I'm really nervous about this. Good. Uh, this is stuff I have said to teams in the past. Um, I, I, I often say, I have these boundaries and constraints, right? I work in inside of this box, which means I can't let you go outside of that box because otherwise I don't get enough cover from my management. However, I can give you cover. I can support you if you can stay inside this box. And if you can, if you can offer me information about your experiments frequently, and I don't know how frequent frequently has to be. Um, that that will help me uh, serve you. Yeah, great. Good. I just wanted to ask Johanna directly. Uh, we talked a lot about safety to collaborate and experiment, and I guess I started to wonder: is collaboration enough alone? And have you seen anecdotally? Is there such thing as a highly collaborative organization that doesn't have the safety and freedom to experiment? Oh, yes. I've seen placating organizations where the the leadership team collaborated and they discussed and discussed and discussed and discussed and several more discussed onto that because the hippo, the CEO, made the final decision, right? The hippo is the highest paid person's opinion. So um, it almost didn't matter what any of them said. They were quite collaborative, except with the one person who could make and did make the final decision. So collaboration is not enough. It has to be, you have to have the ability to say, we will make this decision and not have that decision taken away from them, right? So in one of the books I talked about supporting the team and delegating problems and outcomes, the CEO in this case did not did not de- delegate the problems and outcomes to the next level down leadership team, which was a senior team, right? But they they did not have the ability to decide. So 
collaboration by itself is not enough. They have to be able to actually make the decision, stick with it, and have that safe inside the organization. Um, listeners, let us know. What do you think about that question? Collaboration, is that enough? Or, or do you agree with uh, what Johanna had just said there? Uh, reach out to us on Twitter and uh, use the hashtag tell agile coffee um i just wanted to ask one other thing again you're a prolific writer uh speaker you you've spoken with um not only at conferences and whatnot but you you go to uh meet people in their workplace and and you talk to people throughout levels of organization but as a writer uh is there any advice that you would give to people whether they're managers or not uh in terms of using writing to help them become better thinkers or better managers or doing whatever they do better um i i did not expect this when i started to write i i am not a natural writer i don't know even what i don't know how natural and writer works uh-huh. as as a phrase right i i think that that's that's a fallacy that people who like to write have been perpetuating on those of us who are not by nature writers first. Um, so I, I find that when I write stuff down, I learn from the act of writing. And I find that when I speak and I, I ask, um, I hear the questions people ask me, I learn from that and then I write down the answers to what they, to what they ask. I, I find that those questions really help me. Inside the organization, I have found that if if managers could spend even just five minutes writing down bullets of what they want to discuss before a meeting, they would have a much better meeting. And if they if they are willing to do even more writing, a few paragraphs of what they think, they would find that they would have a deeper discussion faster. Unfortunately, way too many managers run from meeting to meeting to meeting, Mm -hmm. and the meetings don't even end at five of the hour, right? So you call a meeting for 10 a.m., it goes until 11. Even, Even with Zoom, at some point, you need a bio break. You need you need yeah. a, a time uh, a time to stop what you're doing now, change your focus, yeah. release all that other stuff, and yeah. go into the next meeting. So one of the one of the things I have suggested for a very long time is that managers have meetings no longer than forty five minutes, and that allows them if they have not yet take taken time to prepare for their next meeting, even if they only write down three or four phrases, they will be in much better shape. And the shorter meeting allows more slack time. And managers managers really need time to think. We'll end on that note. I want to thank Chris and Ben for joining us. As always, you've been great guests uh, making decisions and providing a safe environment here, as well as Johanna for joining us. Thank you very much for um, sharing what you've learned and what you've put into the books. Um, Thank you. This was a blast. uh, Where can people best find these books right now? So the books are everywhere in ebook and print. I am just starting the audio versions, oh, great. which nothing nothing is going to be fast with audio. There's <laughs> there's a there they will probably be available on Apple and all the other stores way before Audible and ACX. 
allows if, them. If people wanted to be notified, would you recommend the Pragmatic Manager newsletter or is there another way that they could get updates from you on when that could come out, the Audible and ACX? The, the Pragmatic Manager newsletter has all the, the pertinent announcements. And I just yes. have to say, that's, that's a great name, Pragmatic Manager. I'm really happy that you've been using that. I'm waiting for the podcast, though, I have to say. Pragmatic Manager <laughs> podcast, come on. No, no, not going to happen. I'm, I'm going to spend my time writing. But thank you. Thank you very much. All right. And thank you all. And listeners, please, uh, please enjoy. All the show notes will be online at agilecoffee.com slash episode 75. Until next time, enjoy your coffee with friends. <laughs>